T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one... They're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. It was just a month ago on this podcast that the head of the New York City Teachers Union cast doubt on a September 10th reopening of schools. It's looking uh, extremely uh, difficult, to say the least. Michael Mulgrew said the city's plan came up short, and he wasn't willing to put teachers at risk for in-person classes without a better plan. The city and its teachers' union appeared to be on a collision course until this surprise announcement Tuesday morning. I'm pleased to report that we've come to an agreement to move forward to address real concerns that have been raised about how to do things the right way, how to do them the safe, healthy way, how to make sure people are prepared for the school year under absolutely unprecedented conditions. New York's Mayor Bill de Blasio announcing the plan to push back in-person learning for New York City schools until September 21st and delay the start of schools a full week. This week on 880 In-Depth, Teachers Union head Michael Mulgrew returns to tell us how it all happened and says the next crisis on the horizon for city schools is... We do not have enough teachers right now. We are short. I'm Tim Sheld from WCBS News Radio 880. And with apologies to Hamilton, we're going to take you to the room where it happened and let you hear about how that decision was made to hold off reopening schools for in-person learning in New York. We're also going to hear later on in the pod from an education expert on her thoughts about how remote learning can actually work for school districts. It is worth waiting to hear. But first... I guess he wanted to find out if we were just posturing because we didn't want to open the schools, or if we were serious about we needed to open the schools, but we had to be, it had to be done uh, with the demands that we had. Our Peter Haskell spoke to UFT President Michael Mulgrew about the deal that was announced this week, putting off the reopening of schools for in-person learning until September 21st. But the deal has much more to it, including monthly testing and strict safety protocols that, if they are not met, will require a school building to be closed. Here is Michael Mulgrew. I think the city understood our resolve in terms of the safety issues and how we were approaching them. Um, you know, this was really a personal matter for the UFT uh, because of what happened in March. Um, you know, we fought to close our schools, but we still believed that the schools were closed too late, and that's why we believe that that's why we had so many deaths inside of our membership. 
Council for all, we, we had made a decision in April, uh, both the, our executive board and at our town halls, which would have over 20,000 members on them, that uh, we, needed, uh, we needed a plan uh, for each and every school that it was absolutely black and white, what each and every school was to be doing and what they were supposed to have, and then that plan had to be basically validated and stamped approved by independent medical experts. And unless we had that, we weren't going back in. So I don't think anyone was listening to us uh, until they started to say, oh, now we're ready to reopen schools. And we said, well, we're not because you're not ready. And I think they understood once we went to started our strike authorization process that we weren't kidding. You had told us there were months where you didn't speak to the mayor at all. When did you start speaking with him? And take us inside the room. How did this unfold that the two sides reached this agreement? Well, two weeks ago, uh, I actually sat with the mayor, and we talked about the importance of the school system. And there's there's no there's no difference of opinion there. We, we, we you know he understands and I understand and we both believe that the school uh, is the foundational uh, anchor to every community and it serves a central role uh, for so for the children of New York City. But it was do you, I guess he wanted to find out if we were just posturing because we didn't want to open the schools or if we were serious about we needed to open the schools but we had to be it had to be done. Uh, with the demands that we had. And I think he understood at that point that we were serious. We understand and are very proud of the role our schools play uh, in, in New York City. And we take great pride that we're the largest school system and we do a phenomenal job and we believe we're the best school system. I think at that point that's how it started. But then it became more about... Uh, more conversations about we've wait, you waited too long to engage in this process, the schools will not be ready, and at the same time, the policies you're putting on the table are not, uh, are not good enough for us. And then that really played out more over the last three, the last three days uh, before you, the announcement yesterday. So I'm curious, two things. First of all, how significant was the strike threat in getting de Blasio to see your way. And the other thing is, what is the likelihood come September 21st that you're going to say, hey, wait a second, and the strike threat comes back? Okay, so the, the, I, I'm not sh- I, I think the mayor understood, like we did, that there, it's an important thing for our city right now to try because, you know, everyone just assumed because our positivity rate is so low uh, that New York City, you know, you hear all these pundits talking about how horrible it is, these school openings across the country, but then they always say, but New York City can open. They thought that that would just be the leverage against us to just open, and we were absolutely um, resolute in saying no, because, as I explained to you, it's, it's this is really personal to us because of what happened. Um and I think once he understood that, he understood that we had to go to a place uh, that at first he was not uh, comfortable with going to. Um, now, as of the 21st, the, 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 the significant part of this agreement is it's not a collective bargaining agreement. This is an agreement that is part of our state, edu- uh, state plan. So that plan now is submitted to the state education department, but it's a COVID plan. 
So that plan is basically a law. It's, it's approved. So we now don't have to go through a grievance process. If there's something not in an individual school, it's, it, because it's all black and white, every school needs to have these things and these procedures. Uh, if the school doesn't have it, we can then go and say, fix it within two hours or we're closing the school down. And that's what we're going to do. So there, at that moment, the courts would probably deem us that this is not a job action and that we're doing it for safety, uh, that it, the safety reason is uh, significant and that's what matters here. How challenging do you think it's going to be for the city to get to the point where you're comfortable in all of these schools? It, it's, it's, it's probably the greatest challenge we're going to have uh, to get every school to where we need it to be, and then to maintain it is actually even going to be a greater challenge, because we've seen uh, over and over again that people tend to get more lax once they get comfortable uh, with with their surroundings when it comes to this virus, and that's something we're going to have to really focus on like a laser. We've had over, we've visited, we've had our staff who have trained, and they've visited over a thousand schools already. We have lists of what is missing, what's in place. Uh, what still needs to be done, um, and we've been doing that for the last two weeks. Uh, but come Tuesday, you know, the schools, the, mem- the staffs will return to school. But, uh, you know, the city has assured us we have a list of schools that still do not have their personal protective equipment. People can't go into a school if it doesn't have personal protective equipment inside of it. See, that, that, that's what the, that disagreement does. So, and that would not be considered a job action. It's like you can't go in because you're not following the plan that you submitted to the state that you attested to that everything was happening. So that's getting that set in place in every school is going to be a great challenge. And, you know, that's why over the next, from the minute this announcement was made yesterday until uh, September 21st, it's like 24-7, all hands on deck every day, all day. It sounds like there's a, a decent chance some schools will not be ready to open. I'm hoping that's not the case, but it would not surprise me if that's true. What are you hearing from your members? You know, yesterday we had our delegate assembly, which is the governing body of the union, and uh, 2,800 people uh, voted on whether to accept this plan or not, and 82% uh, voted yes. And the major issue was we all said, you know, we have real discussions here. So we said if we have mandated testing and if we have the procedural things uh, that doctors and industrial hygienists are saying we have to have inside of the school and if we have a list of all the supplies, equipment, and um, PPE um, at each uh, uh, in each school that we would then and it's validated by an outside expert, we would go back. And that's why the vote was 82 to 82% positive, because they were clear that, yes, we made this agreement, people thought we were crazy, nobody thought we were going to get it, and we did get it. But we fought not just for ourselves, but we wanted our schools to be able to be safe and that we can tell parents, we've done everything we can do to make sure we're keeping your children safe. And that's why so many parents have stood with us through this process. 82% were on board with the plan, 18% were not. Do you expect those 18% go back to school, and if they don't, then what? 
I would expect them to go back to school. If they don't go back to school, then they're, you know, they're choosing to take a leave. And that's their, you know, I, I will support and help them do whatever they feel is right for them. Uh, but, you know, this is what a union is. Believe me, we've never had an issue that everybody agrees on, ever. And I don't think we ever will. The other thing, we hear about the different cohorts. Are there enough teachers to go around to, to teach these various cohorts? And are they all members of the UFT in New York City? We do not have enough teachers right now. We are short. Um, so what is happening is that the uh, there will be a massive hiring of substitute teachers as needed. And the Department of Education has informed all everybody who works in the Department of Education at every level, uh, if you are a qualified teacher, then that you will, there's a real possibility you will be redeployed as a teacher until we get through this pandemic. How many teachers do you need? We're getting that now from uh, the principals because a lot of it has to do with how many children are not coming in for live instruction. And that number is moving every day. Uh, we're hoping the announcement yesterday uh, gave some parents some more real information because that's what we were getting from parents. I need information. I don't believe, I don't understand what the mayor and the chancellor are saying every day. They're not giving us a real plan. So we're hoping because of what we did yesterday that this is a plan. This is a checklist. You know, this is something any parent can look for inside of their school. And these are the things that we're going to make sure that every school, this is truly equity, because every school has to have this. It can't be one school gets a real safe situation and the other school doesn't. Everybody has to have it. So, But we're going to see where those numbers land up, and that will determine a lot by how many teachers uh, that we'll need. What we do know is the teachers who uh, uh, were granted medical accommodations uh, will be teaching full-time, full-class loads of, teach, of students who have opted not to come in person, but we don't even have enough teachers to cover the, all the students that have opted out. And then the in-person teaching actually takes up even more personnel because those teachers can only teach twelve up to about 12 children at a time. So we don't have a definitive number yet, but we're having each school send us those. Is there a chance some remote classes might be taught from te by teachers who are not part of the New York City system? No. So what happens then if you don't have enough teachers? Well, well, when we get these numbers, that's something we're going to have to address over the next week. And then if that, you know, here's the, here's the tough part. This is why it's so disgusting what the federal government did. You know, every school system is facing the same dilemma. Unless you're fully remote and you have what you used to be the right ratio of teachers to students, any school system that's trying to do any sort of blended learning is facing the same exact dilemma on top of all of the costs, additional costs for all of the safety measures. And when the federal government failed to act, they really put every school system in a horrendous situation. At the same time, every, every elected official was standing up saying, oh, we need our schools open, but they all failed to act. It's a, it's a disgrace on all of them. But what we'll do is we'll work with the city to figure out how we can hire uh, we'll get the personnel that we need, um, it, whether that be substitute teachers or full-time hires. We're just going to have to figure it out, even in this really difficult time. I know we're facing layoffs, but we're, we're having major conversations on how to help the city get through that piece also. I know testing was very big for you. Describe how this is going to work 
And are you confident the results will be turned around quickly enough to be relevant? Well, in our agreement, it says up to 48 hours for the results. So if the city can't adhere to that, then one more time they have broken their plan, and then we can go to the state for relief or go to a court. Um, so w- what the uh, what the experts, the head epidemiologists that we were working with had told us is that a, a medical monitoring program was the, the gold standard in terms of uh, monitoring and screening a community for the possibility of COVID being there when you didn't know it. So if, if an individual student or teacher has symptoms of COVID, they automatically are go to an isolation room and then move, leave the building and then get to the proper medical uh, attention that they need. It, the concern is those who are not having the symptoms. That's why every school now will have a percentage of total people who go into that building, every school on a monthly basis will have a medical monitoring program. The percentage changes depending on the size of the school, but it's adults and students will automatically have to be tested. Um, and that's for every school across the entire city every month. What we And that is what the medical professional said. If you have that, plus your PPE, your social distancing, and everything else, then if you do have something in a school, you will catch it. There's, there's a high probability you'll catch it uh, before it starts to spread. So that is going to be something that's done on a monthly basis, and you're talking about 1,500 school buildings every month, you know, 10 to 20% of everyone in those buildings being tested constantly. Uh, yes, it does present the challenge, but the city said through their health and hospitals uh, system, that they could guarantee the results would be back within 48 hours. You started speaking with the mayor two weeks ago. Is there anything you've learned since then about why it has taken until the 11th hour for the city to come up with these plans? I just think there wasn't a willingness to listen at that point. And um, uh, I just... um, uh, I'm not sure exactly why. Uh, we were, I guess, you know, nobody took us seriously when we said in April you need to at least give the authority to the Department of Ed to start doing our school planning. Um, and then once it got to July, I think it was because we were, you know, everyone was saying it was too late to get the schools open on time. The mayor was trying to prove everyone that he could get it done, which is great, but we're not going to get it done in the middle of a pandemic and not do it correctly and cause... Uh, and have anything happen to us like happened to us in March. Uh, but you'd have to ask him. So is this just stubbornness? Yeah, you're just going to have to ask him. I'm, I, I don't, I don't. All I can say is the last, I, I, I give the mayor credit for, uh, for listening and understanding that the concerns were real and that there was an issue and we were standing firm and we weren't going to move off of it. So I give him credit for understanding that that was the situation at this point in time and for take, taking his public position and moving it to a place that is, that is really responsible. Michael, anything we didn't cover that we should have? Nope. Great. It's pretty thorough. Great. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. I hope things work out for everybody. Thank you, Peter. Be well. Teachers Union head Michael Mogrew and our Peter Haskell.
Just this week, we saw big districts across our listening area pull back their plans for in-person learning, moving to more remote or all remote. Not surprising to anyone who's been paying attention, school districts are struggling here. It's why we reached out to teaching expert Dietra Price-Dennis. As school districts prepare for either part-time or full-time virtual learning, what kinds of things should they be doing now to prepare for the school year? Oh, that's such a great question. And it almost feels like these are things that should have been happening since March, but hey, we're going to take it from right now. Dietra Price-Dennis is Associate Professor of Education from Teachers College at Columbia with an expertise in mathematics, science, and technology. We asked her what school districts should be focused on today with their remote learning. So obviously getting, making sure that their teachers, getting a sense of their teachers' dispositions and comfort with technology, with planning for remote instruction, understanding what um, teachers are sort of comfortable doing, uncomfortable doing, and then providing professional development to booster the skill sets of their teachers is one thing that would be really important to do right now. So getting a assessment, a sense of what do our teachers need to be able to plan and plan and deliver impactful um, teaching and learning for the students in the district. So that's really a, a top priority. The second one, and I guess these aren't in any order, but I'm thinking that is a top priority. Along with that would be what are the essential practices that teachers do and cannot live without um, face-to-face, right? So if we were all together just like normal last, last fall, what are the things teachers would say? And that would look different in elementary, middle, and high school. But in elementary, it might look like community meetings, guided readings, that's small, small reading groups, um, math instruction, writing instruction, read aloud. Those are the things that some elementary teachers might say, I can't, I can't give with those up. Those are essential practices that help me understand literacy development, math development, that prepare students um, to be critical thinkers, all of those other things, right? So let's get a sense of what those were when we were learning in person so that we can start to think about engagement and innovation of how those can look if we're doing it synchronously or if we're doing it asynchronously. And that sort of brings me to that second, the third piece to that, which is what is the plan for learning, right? Are we going to be fully online, fully remote? And if so, how much time are we asking parents and, and families and children to um, log on or participate in synchronous or real-time learning? And then how much other time will they be doing these asynchronous modules? And what does that look like? For our youngest learners, what does that look like for our, you know, more seasoned or adolescent learners? And how do we communicate that it, within one family? So if you happen to have kids in elementary and high school, um, which I did up until last year, then that should look different. We shouldn't be asking five-year-olds to sit on a computer for four or five hours a day. Actually, we shouldn't be asking anyone to do that, but definitely not five-year-olds. So being really clear with families about what the expectations are um, is super important. And I would say along those lines to troubleshooting. So here are our expectations, Here, here's the schedule, and here's what we do when we get stuck. So if you, if you get stuck with X, here are a list of resources, all hyperlinks, whatever it is that you need to do, phone numbers, whatever it is, 
so that it makes it really easy for parents to know where to go and how to um, troubleshoot and get help when they need it. The spring was so difficult for so many families that there's this feeling that, you know, remote learning or online learning just isn't good enough. It's not going to work. And I just wanted to caution people. I don't believe that that's true. I think what we had, what we experienced in the spring was an emergency remote learning with teachers who had no preparation, um, not only on digital tools, but on digital pedagogy. Online learning requires a really specific type of digital pedagogy. They've had a few months to try to figure that out, but because schools are just now offering their plans within the last 14 days, I'm not even sure we could count the summer as the time that teachers were required or even, they had no clue what was going to happen. So what we experienced in the fall might not also be an informed digital pedagogy. Um, and that, that's okay because we're in the middle of a worldwide pandemic. And so we are, we're thoughtful enough as human beings that we can understand that people are going to do the best that they can. So I think along the lines of what can teachers do, being really clear about what those essential practices are and then really thinking deeply about how they can um, do some design thinking, right? Some, some ideation around this is what it would have looked like if I were in my face-to-face classroom. These are the things I value. These are the types of interactions I value. So how can I bring those types of interactions? What type of tools or platforms might simulate those types of interactions if I had to do this in a synchronous session with my students? What could that look like if I created asynchronous modules for my students? And holistically, across the synchronous and the asynchronous, you may be able to, to figure out a way to um, um, have some of those things that really matter to you, but recognizing that you cannot replicate what was. You can only use the tools that are available to try to simulate it in a way that would, would still promote the type of learning that's important for kids. And so it may mean that you are doing one-to-one conferences with students um, using whatever platforms have been approved by your district. So whether it's Zoom or um, Microsoft Teams, whatever it is, Google Meet, whatever people are using, you can figure that out. You may be scheduling those things. That It may be happening on FaceTime with phone calls. I think teachers are going to start um, continuing to be really creative with how they reach their students and how they create relationships with their students and get a sense of who their students are as people, what their hopes are, what their dreams are, how that matches onto the curriculum that they have to teach, and um, really having a lot of flexibility. So I think thinking, so engagement is also gonna be important in this. And one of one of the things I caution about, and I know people just jumped in in the spring, are the, is the use of video. A lot of folks are using video in the spring in these asynchronous modules and students were just sitting and they're staring at a video screen for 20, 30 minutes. And that is not um, active learning. That is not, that does it, that's not good pedagogy in person. <laughs> so we definitely don't want to, we don't want them to see that online. The little bitty things like videos should be between six and eight minutes long. They should have, um, they should have questions and spaces that, you know, students stop embedded in them so that students are being asked to activate some prior knowledge to share some some thoughts so it's more dialogic those are those are things that teachers can do you know um, it may not be the same that you would do in the classroom but if you're making a video of yourself doing showing a math problem or a science experiment you can embed that in another digital tool or platform and within that platform ask questions so that 
Two minutes into the video, students have to stop and take a poll. Another 40 seconds into the video, students have to do a multiple choice question. At the end of the video, they have to write a response. And that way, you kind of made them do some of the things that you would do face-to-face. -face. You would stop during a real face-to-face -face lesson to check for understanding. Do the same thing in the video. How concerned are you that this is just going to be a lost year for kids? Oh, yeah. I think what we have to, what we might have to accept is that it's not going to look like what it has in the past and that we, um, that we're going to have to have different measures about what effective learning looks like and what we will be able to accomplish. And I think that that's just, that's just the way it's going to have to be. Um, you know, airline travel, eating at restaurants, every other industry has been able to accept um, this is not going to be the same. <laughs> I believe Google has all their, their people remoting in. Like, there are so many industries, banks. People have decided this cannot be what it was before COVID, and here's how we have to adapt and adjust. And I think the same thing is going to have to happen with parents. I think we have to understand that learning happens outside of school, that many parents and families, we are kids' first teachers, that we are constantly engaging and thinking and learning with them. We're constantly in awe of all of the questions that they have, even when they drive us crazy, <laughs> and all of the things we know that they can do that sometimes their teachers don't even know that they can do. So we actually have a little bit of an advantage than the schools have because we know what our kids' skill sets and their passions are. And so what teachers need to make sure of is that there's ways that learning can capture those things. Whatever it is that kids are being asked to do with learning, that it captures their skills and their passions, and hopefully it continues to advance their skill set, depending on how much of that one-on-one -on -one or small group instruction can be possible, which again depends on tools and availability, um, and those are things that are just outside of a lot of our control. So I think the flexibility um, and embracing that we can't do things um, in the same way is, is really might be the way forward, and I, I understand as a parent that it's really hard to think about the third grade looks like this and these are the things the kids usually do in third grade and here are the standards and da 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 we're in a pandemic so we really have to you know just be smarter in our, and use our energy in ways that um, allows us to focus on what we can control and not you know kind of beat a dead horse about the things we can't Control the things you can control, and don't allow the things you can't to eat you up. Words to live by as we begin our most challenging school year. A thank you to Michael Mulgrew and Professor Price Dennis. And to Peter Haskell as well for speaking to both of them. I'm Tim Sheld. This has been 880 In-Depth. We wish you a good week. Be safe.
We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 